0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post.
1: This
2: is Cleve
3: with The Washington
1: Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post.
0: This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, August 13th. Today, the places where climate change is already the reality, how alcoholism shaped President Trump's relationship with his brother, and clashes in Hong Kong.
1: Climate change is not fair. The biggest changes from what used to be hit some people way before they hit others. And uh, that's what we're starting to see manifest itself. People realized this first about the Arctic The Arctic is warming way faster than the globe, and that's kind of something that's been written about a lot. What we've found is that with the last five years of really hot temperatures for the globe, a lot of other places are moving into, just emerging into this zone where they're kind of double the global average as well.
0: This is Chris Mooney.
1: I'm a reporter for The Post's uh, climate change and environment team.
0: And Chris is part of a team of Post journalists who have been taking this really detailed look at how exactly climate change is transforming the planet. And to do that, they built this data set. It looks at how temperatures all over the world have changed since the late 1800s, basically since the start of the Industrial Revolution. They brought in data from a lot of different sources, from NASA and NOAA, from peer-reviewed scientific studies, and from reports by local climatologists.
1: And that has allowed us to identify the places in the globe that are warming really fast.
0: Specifically, they're focusing on the places that have already seen temperatures rise by 2 degrees Celsius, or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit. That is the threshold that scientists say is where the effects of climate change become catastrophic and irreversible. And the first place that the team focused on was right here in the US.
1: What we found is that overall there's three states that are big, fast warming leaders. Alaska, that will surprise nobody because it's partially in the Arctic. But also uh, New Jersey and Rhode Island are third and second, respectively. And that signals that there's something going on with New England because, sure enough, Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Maine are also well above um, 1 and and actually above 1.5. So this region is interesting. It's not the only interesting region, but it's definitely a region above average where there are also a lot of people.
0: So Post reporters went to some of these places in the Northeast to see what that warming looks like in real life. Tell me about some of the things that they saw.
1: We focused on a lake that I think tells the story really well. It's called Lake of Pat It's New Jersey's biggest lake. It's in the north of the state. And the reason it tells the story so well is that, A, it was there this whole time, but it was so different at the beginning of the time period near the you know, early 1900s when there was just so much ice that it was an ice factory and there was no refrigeration then. So people would carve up the ice and ship it, by rail to New York.
0: Like in Frozen. Born
2: of cold and winter, air and
1: right, exactly. <laughs> I just saw the <laughs> beginning of Frozen and I'm like, just like Lake Opatkong.
2: <laughs>
1: I can tell you they don't do that anymore.
2: They still have a lot of ice in Lake Hopatcong, but not nearly enough to, to run an ice business, which luckily we don't need at the moment.
1: we Sent a reporter. It wasn't me, but he did a good job. Steve Mufson went uh, all over his home state of New Jersey.
2: Lake Hopatcong is a little bit of a resort in some ways, and some people go there and do fishing, fishing all year round, including ice fishing. And there was a club of people who liked to go ice fishing, and that required the ice to be a certain thickness because otherwise you're in danger of falling through. As many as 100 people would come for contests they would have, and they would come with their dune buggies and their chairs and their fishing gear and carve holes in the ice and go ice fishing. But for the last four years, those events have been canceled. They would schedule three a year because one a year was no longer enough to hedge your bets, and it turned out that three wasn't enough either.
0: So it does ice over sometimes, but it's not the the level that and sometimes
2: they don't that- have
1: ice, yeah um and so we analyze the temperatures, and it's very clear that the counties around Hepatkog have warmed a lot, especially in the winter, which tends to be the fastest warming season, and that as that has happened, the average temperature is moving towards thirty two Fahrenheit, so the freezing point, so the average is still a little below, but that means you have more and more excursions above, so less and less freezing and The New Jersey climate expert that we talked with, we showed this data to him, David Robinson, he's the state climatologist, said, well, it looks to me like with this lake, you need 25 or 26 Fahrenheit in January to hold your ice fishing contest. And yeah, that's the data show that's becoming a lot less likely. can happen, weather's weather, but in general, if you liked ice fishing uh, and you went to this lake and wanted to do it, you would have noticed it becoming harder and harder to do, and you would have noticed more and more events getting canceled.
0: So the fact that this lake isn't icing over the way that it used to, it sounds like that's a symptom of climate change. But also, it not icing over is the cause of a lot of other problems.
1: Right. So the, the change in the winter seems to extend through and affect uh, the whole year. Because you're talking about a giant lake that people use for recreation. You know, this is a place where people have fun and they, you know, buy houses near it because they want to be near it. You know, It's not just during the winter you ice fish, you fish in all seasons, you take boats on the lake, you go to the beach at the lake. So they have a big weed problem. Aquatic weeds are growing bigger and bigger and thicker, and partly that's because the ice used to kill them, or at least beat them back during Hmm. the winter. The ice isn't as thick, so more sunlight gets through, they grow all year round, they get bigger, then of course you have warmer temperatures, that doesn't help. This summer, the lake has experienced a dangerous algal bloom.
4: Where we really started noticing uh, these blooms persist well into fall was uh, like 2016 and 2017. Uh, My name is Fred Lubno, and I am the director of the aquatics program at Princeton Hydro. I've been working as an environmental consultant for a little over 25 years. Um, We were getting reports of nasty blue-green algae blooms well into October and even early November.
1: Just this summer. The New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection took a step that they said was unprecedented for such a large lake like Habatgong, which is to say that because of this harmful algal bloom, because it's so big, you know, you need to kind of avoid contact with the lake. Well, that basically means that all the businesses that uh, run on recreation, you know, serving people food, um, giving them boat tours, whatever, whatever it is, they have to sort of stop. I mean, some people maybe want to risk it, but they're saying it's not safe until the algae clears. So that's kind of a giant blow to the community.
4: It was really, I'd say over the last, I'd say three to four years, we've seen these blooms really persist and linger a lot longer than they have been in the past. They keep getting worse. Um, That means that these blooms will occur earlier and earlier and they'll persist later and later in the season. So under climate change, and there've been a lot of studies to show this, that we, we will see these blooms becoming more common, more persistent. Uh, and and uh, even be larger in magnitude.
0: Oftentimes when we talk about climate change, we're talking about the Arctic and we're talking about melting glaciers and very cold places where it is somewhat catastrophic for them to be getting warmer. But it sounds like in the Northeast you have this other problem of places all of a sudden going from a mostly frozen place in the winter to a barely ever frozen place in the winter.
1: It's a big change. That's because the The degree at 32 is sort of more important than the other degrees because it's a phase change for water, right? It goes from ice to liquid. And it turns out that New Jersey is right at this place between like cold places and not so cold places. And as the warming in New Jersey has happened, the average winter has gone past 32. And as that happens, it's not just the lakes. Lakes, of course, change, right? You know, f- The freezing of water is just a very simple process, and it depends directly on the temperature. But all these insects have their ranges extended, um, where before the winter was too cold and it would kill them. So now you have you know beetles eating pine trees in New Jersey. They used to just be doing this in southern states, but they're into New Jersey. Now they're moving up through the northeast. You have expansion of ticks, more problems with mosquitoes, more pests for agriculture. I mean, this is you know what's happening is this temperature change kind of ripples across the state it just brings a lot of things with it
0: so one of the other places that that you all have been looking at is Rhode Island and what's been changing there
1: Rhode Island is sort of built around Narragansett Bay Narragansett Bay has warmed something like 1.5 Celsius in just 50 60 years so so fast things are happening offshore fishing has been upended by warm ocean water which may also be affecting onshore and the lobster catch has kind of vanished in Rhode Island.
5: They are this tiny state, but they have more than 400 miles of coastline when you include the fact that they have an estuary which kind of, you know, dips in. As a result, they are seeing these impacts and absolutely have to take precautions. My name is Juliette Eilprin. I'm the Senior National Affairs Correspondent.
1: This is also a place that is experiencing faster sea level rise than usual, and that's what we looked at in particular.
6: Hurricane Sandy. I came down the day after it happened, and uh, uh, it was perfect. Not even uh, not even salt water got got to the lawn. The lawn was still as green as it could be. My name is, is Tony Laura. I've been there at the summer home. I've uh, been there for thirteen years. We are right on the beach, and it is located in uh, Matunic Beach, Rhode Island. I was very lucky.
5: This is Roy Carpenter Beach, which is a really interesting place, frankly, because... It's an unusual situation where the residents there who just generally own summer cottages – this is a place that you, you know, might spend your whole summer in, but a lot of them live in Massachusetts or, you know, nearby or elsewhere in Rhode Island. When you're in the front row, if it really seems like like your homes could be devastated by coastal erosion or the impact of storms, they're – telling those people you have to move your homes to the back row. And I just thought that's such a fascinating predicament, this idea that you have an oceanside view, um, you know, that this is your moment to kind of, you know, kick back in the summer and see the sea. And yet you might go to literally the back of the line because otherwise you could lose your home or suffer severe damage.
6: I'm up a little bit higher than yeah, and a little bit further back, then, you know, I'm on row four, and row two, uh,
1: one and two are the ones who got took the hit. The ocean keeps coming in, so somebody's right up against it. They actually move their house to the back row, and then the ocean...
0: Like physically move, like, yeah, like do the thing where they pick up the entire structure and move it.
6: So now uh, I have a direct view of the, of the beach in the ocean. It's wide open in front of me. Very unfortunate for the people that have to move in more unfortunate for the people that have lost their cottages. I believe it's uh, global warming. Uh, the waters are a lot higher. The ocean is a lot higher than it used to be. So now when you get a storm, it's going to hit land a lot quicker because it's already much higher than it used to be. I'm hoping to have this for my uh, grandkids, but will it be there? It's Nobody knows. You know, Like I said, if we get a big storm, we could get... A few small storms, and we should survive a few small storms, but if we had a big, big hit, there won't be nothing left. Uh, the, I mean, the area will be clean of the ocean.
1: It just goes to underscore that off of the east coast of the United States, from Maine all the way down past New Jersey, there's just some really dramatic things happening. This is not a you know a quiet place for climate change. This is a dynamic, dramatic place for climate change.
0: When you see these hotspots around the country, why is that important? Or what do you think that tells us?
1: The reason we think looking at hotspots is important is that they give a sense of what might be coming for other places, right? Because they're above average, but as the average keeps increasing, it's going to drag more and more places along with it. So the kind of disruptive or um, really dramatic change that they're already seeing is something that a lot of places can look forward to. In fact, by definition, that's what's expected to come for them. And right now, the level of commitment and change in global energy policy does not at all match a 2C world, much less a 1.5C world. So unless something changes really fast and it's hard to change these things fast, you know that is where we're headed.
0: Chris, thank you so much.
1: It's good to be talking to you.
0: Chris Mooney, Juliet Alprin, and Steve Muffson are reporters covering climate change at The Post. Graphics editor John Myskins analyzed more than a century of climate data. You can explore their work through maps and an interactive county-by-county breakdown at postreports.com.
3: Well, I spent a lot of time writing about President Trump over the years as a candidate and now as president. And one of the things I've always been interested in is what happened with his older brother, Fred Jr., who died of alcoholism in 1981.
7: I had a brother, Fred, great guy, best looking guy, best personality, much better than mine. But he had a problem. He had a problem with alcohol.
3: My name is Michael Cranish, and I'm an investigative political reporter at The Washington Post.
7: But he really helped me. I had somebody that guided me. And he had a very, very, very tough life because of alcohol, believe me, very, very tough, tough life. He was a strong guy, but it was a tough, tough thing that he was going through.
3: President Trump made a recent off-the-cuff statement when he was talking about the opioid crisis about how his experience with his brother's death from alcoholism informed his views on this that has given some empathy to him for victims of the opioid crisis. So it really seemed like an opening to me to talk to him in more depth about What had happened and a little more of the story, Donald Trump for years has said that he learned from his brother not to drink alcohol because of what happened to him. But I'd never heard him say what he had done to help his brother or what the family had done to help his brother. So that was one of the things I was interested in. And I wanted to call up a lot of people who knew Fred Trump Jr. throughout his life because I felt we knew basically how he died, but we knew very little about how he lived.
0: Tell me a little bit about what happened during those years before he died.
3: Well, Fred Trump Jr. grew up in the 1950s in Queens. He was the firstborn son in the Fred Trump senior family. Uh, Donald Trump was his younger brother. And he... Was seen as the person who would take over the family business. He had the name of his father, and that was just expected. He would be the one who would go on to greatness. We'd be talking about Fred Trump Jr. today, probably is what people thought. But in reality, he didn't want to go into the family business. At the time, it was a a rather mundane business. You were talking about renting apartments in the outer boroughs of New York City to working class residents, not the most glamorous thing. He wanted to be a pilot. This was a very honorable profession in his eyes, wanted to fly for TWA. But the family didn't see that. Fred Trump Sr. told him that being a pilot was being like a, quote, chauffeur in the sky, quote, unquote. And Donald Trump told his uh, older brother, you know, why would you want to do that? You're wasting your time. So this was very demoralizing, according to Fred Trump Jr.'s friends that I talked to. A lot of pressure was put on him, and that may be a key thing that led led to his drinking. So he did become a pilot uh, for TWA for about a year, secondary pilot, went through training, which was not easy to get into that class. But after about a year, he basically was forced to leave, whether that was because he was terminated because of drinking or because the pressure he was under from his family to rejoin the business in New York is not 100 percent clear. But the bottom line is he basically had to give up his dream and he went back to New York and did work for the company. But he was very unhappy in that situation by all accounts.
0: So who did you talk to about this period in Fred Trump Jr.'s life?
3: Well, I wanted to talk to as many people who knew Fred Trump Jr. as possible. I went through college yearbooks and I contacted a lot of fraternity brothers who went to school with him at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. I was able to track down TWA pilots who trained with him in Kansas City at their school there and reached people who remembered him vividly, including someone who sat next to him at that class. And then I talked to President Trump. You talked to the president about this. I did. I called the White House and I said, you know, I've talked to a lot of people who've never talked before. I think I've got the fullest picture of Fred Trump Jr. They told me a lot of new things. And I just have a feeling that it's the kind of story President Trump will want to weigh in on now that I've got a lot of new information uh, about his brother. And initially they thought, well, he probably is not going to be able to talk to you. I heard nothing for a week. And then at five o'clock at night, uh, one day about a week ago, I got a phone call saying uh, the president will call you in five minutes
7: president for you. Thank you. Hi, Michael. How are you?
3: Good, morning, Mr. President. How are you?
7: I'm very good. Thank you. I heard you were doing something on my brother, so I wanted to talk because he was a great guy.
0: And so, when you talked to President Trump about this, what did he say about what the experience was like for him watching his, his brother kind of sink into this illness?
7: Beating alcohol is a very, very tough thing to do. And uh, my brother at a you know, reasonably young age um, started, and uh, it was it was very tough, it was very tough to watch. I learned a lot, uh, you know, number one, it's somebody that you, uh, you adore, because I, I really did, I had a, just a great relationship with him. As I said, he had the best personality, had the best look, he had the best everything,
3: but he had... I wanted to get a sense of how this affected Donald Trump, just like you say, Um, get him out of the sort of the soundbite that he's used again and again, and really go into what seems like one of the darkest interior moments of his life.
7: Once we realized, once, because, you know, he he really was, he was having a hard time with it. And uh, the family, my father and my mother, they were great parents with respect to Fred. They really were. Um, he came back into the house
0: mm-hmm.
7: with my parents, uh, and he'd, uh, he really, you know, my, look, my mother was a phenomenal mother, and so was my father. Um, he was strong, but he was a, uh, he was a very good person, and they, they really worked hard. Now, I was out of the house by that time, uh, but, you know, I, I really, you know, I, I watched it, and I worked with Fred. But it was a very tough situation. It, alcohol is tough.
3: I've seen there wasn't that much that could be done, according to the president. Some people may look back and say... Maybe there were things that could have been done. Maybe there was more rehab. Some of Fred Trump Jr.'s friends did tell me they're concerned that maybe some things that might have been done were not done. We weren't there. It's impossible to know. But I certainly did try to to press the president on that to see, you know, what he remembered himself doing uh, and the family doing. What did you do to so say you worked with Fred? This is important. What did you, you know, what? I dealt with it. I've, I've, we went out to dinner a lot. We
7: sometimes come home, go to lunch with him. Uh, hmm. but there's there's you know I've I've seen this not only with Fred I've seen this many yeah. times now during the course of a a life where I get to see a lot of things Did he ever go to rehab? I haven't seen I haven't seen too many successes
3: I must be Did he words. ever go to rehab?
7: He did. He a did. Number of times. Yeah, he Oh, did. where did he go? Can you tell me? I, that I don't know. It's a long time ago. That I don't know, but he went to rehab.
3: Is there Did you and, ever visit him there?
7: And it was uh, well, I don't think it was uh, I don't think it was a, a necessarily a stayover rehab, um, because he he lived in the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember it as being a stayover, but you know, I I spent a lot of time with Fred, and and you know, look, he really was a very big factor in
3: my life.
0: And what were some of the surprising things that you heard from him about what this time in his life was like, and and his relationship with his brother?
3: Well. The, the, I guess the surprising thing for a lot of people is that previously he said, well, perhaps we shouldn't have pressured him to go in the family business. In this interview, he made the most declarative statement I've ever heard him make. You wrote in your autobiography that you told him, come on, Freddie, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. And someone else said that you had compared him to a bus driver um, and that your father had compared him to a chauffeur in the sky. So when you put yourself back, you know, all those decades ago when those kind of conversations were going on, you know, do you think that hurt him?
7: No, but I never said that. But I did say, you know, we have a business. It could be a, you know, it, it could be a growing business, a good business. And I really liked him being in it because he's, you know, I, I feel I feel that uh, it would have been it would have been great. Mm-hmm. And I do I do regret having put pressure on him because it was just something he wasn't going to ever like. And probably it was not his thing.
3: So he was very um, clear in saying that he made he regretted what he did and he made mistakes
0: Which honestly is especially surprising hearing coming from the president because he's not a person who seems very open to admitting mistakes and regrets in public.
3: Right. When the president faces a problem, you know, people typically know that he'll go on the attack. It's very unusual for him to express a regret, to admit he's made mistakes. Um, It just doesn't happen very often, either in his business career, where he certainly had plenty of failures, six corporate bankruptcies, for example. Um, He's always usually blaming someone else here who else is there to blame there's really not outside forces here you know to blame this was something that either you look at your brother and you say it's entirely his doing or you have to or you look back as now he does he says he's learned over the years and understands things better that there was a lot of pressure whether that pressure led him directly to be an alcoholic is impossible to say donald trump himself says he believes that alcoholism is a quote genetic thing and he says that basically he has a fear that if he drinks a single glass of alcohol that he'll become alcoholic like his brother, he said,
7: I can't tell you whether or not, you know, I, I feel that if I would have drunk, if, if I would have been a drinker, let's say I would have started drinking, it's very possible I wouldn't be talking to you right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you understand that, right? It's very possible yeah. I would not be talking to you right now.
3: It's something that he's he's always said. He has always said that he didn't drink. Some people may question that, but, you know, that is, that is the story that he's told for decades. How
0: do you This conversation with President Trump, hearing him reflect on these experiences and also talking to other people who were around these two brothers at that time, how did that change or complicate the way that you see and understand the president?
3: Well, a lot of people see the president, they, they see him at the rallies where he's playing to the crowd and shouting and making statements that a lot of people might consider outrageous or saying things that are determined to be untrue. I've done a number of interviews, maybe six or seven, over the last three years with the president, several before while he was running for office. We were working on the Washington Post biography, Trump Revealed, and some afterwards. This is sort of typical. If you listen to the um, interview, he's soft-spoken. He does sound on this topic uniquely more reflective. People have remarked upon that, having read the story. I guess one question is, Okay, now he expresses empathy towards what happened to his brother. Does he translate that universally? Does he show more empathy for people who experience various problems? What Trump told me was that he will use this to understand better how to deal with the opioid crisis.
0: Michael Cranish is a national political investigative reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing.
2: The scene is very tense.
0: Post reporter Jerry Shi was at the Hong Kong airport on Tuesday when fighting started between riot police and protesters.
3: Things have taken a very dark turn now with a mob of protesters surrounding a man on the ground. They appear to be beating him. It's complete, it's complete chaos. This is a man who protesters believe to
1: be an undercover Chinese
8: police officer.
0: Hong Kong police have been using increasingly aggressive tactics, including the use of pepper spray and batons against protesters.
8: This is without a doubt the largest protests and the biggest, you know, political crisis that Hong Kong, the territory, has experienced since 1997, when the territory was handed back from the British to the Chinese.
0: Tim McLaughlin is a reporter based in Hong Kong. The protests there began 10 weeks ago, after a bill was introduced to the legislature that would allow the semi-autonomous government of Hong Kong to extradite people to other countries, including mainland China. But Tim says that though Hong Kong chief executive Carrie Lam pulled back the bill for now, the protesters have other demands too.
8: The government has suspended that bill but not withdrawn it, and withdrawing it is one of the demands. The other ones include a uh, an investigation into the police and the government's handling of the bill, the police's response to the demonstrations. Protesters are also looking for uh, universal suffrage to be implemented, a more democratic system to take hold here in Hong Kong. And they're also looking for the protesters who have been arrested, that now number in the hundreds, uh, for them to be all released unconditionally and their charges against them dropped. Today, Carrie Lam met with uh, the media briefly and offered up no real suggestions and no real path forward here on how to keep things Stable or how to de escalate what's going on. Protests here have been described largely as leaderless, that there isn't one or two people who have been organizing all of this. A lot of it is being done online through encrypted apps, through very popular forums. And so it's it's difficult to know kind of where the next move will be. A lot of things come at kind of short notice. The calls go out. People show up very quickly for a lot of things. There's a chance that we could see the aggressive tactics that we saw from the police continue.
0: Tim McLaughlin is a reporter based in Hong Kong. Jerry Shi is the Post correspondent in Beijing. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in this episode by heading to postreports.com and join in on the conversation online by using the hashtag Postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.